Welcome to Witham Sounding Board, a podcast sharing powerful business tips, insights, and trends for those seeking to become a rock star in their industry. Hi, everyone. I'm Kim Gordon, and I'm here with Steve Janak from SWK Technologies. Steve is Director of Solution Architecture of Enterprise Solutions with 30 years of experience in the food and beverage industry and operations. Today, Steve is going to walk us through critical tracking events in terms of traceability. Steve, take it away. Thanks, Kim. Um, In the last episode, as you recall, we did talk about the new and proposed regulations uh, primarily related to FISMA Chapter 204 and the establishment of the food traceability list and uh, the FDA new era of food safety blueprint that just came out this past November. Um, Within that context, we did talk about what products are included in those uh, regulations and then what the particular uh, changes might be occurring based on the new blueprint that's out there for food safety. Um, One of the discussions we talked about was tech-enabled traceability. So at this point, um, from a standpoint of record-keeping and and how we have to manage this whole process, uh, we're going to start a discussion on the uh, uh, critical tracking events, as you said, which is is the areas that the FDA is really keying in on as to what uh, we need to go and follow through on. So, uh, So, So what are the critical tracking events? So um, the the proposed rules right now are going to identify a number of areas that they want to capture these uh, critical tracking events and the important uh, key data elements that they want to capture. Basically, what they're looking at is is they need to uh, track things at the grower level, at the receiving level, transforming level, creating level, and, and, and shipping as well. Um, we'll get into all of these in a little bit of more detail, but but really what they want to do is make sure that at each of these points that we can link the traceability lock code of the food to the relevant uh, um, key data elements so that we can trace it from end to end at that point. So can you further define the critical tracking events? Yeah, so um, basically, as I said, there's a number of different ones that are out there that they've uh, kind of identified as an area they need. Um, the first one is growers. Uh, those are the people that are producing the produce, uh, the you know the eggs, um, and different things that are on the the critical uh, traceability list. Um, so what they really are saying here is that anybody who who actually grows those, they're going to have to establish a lock code uh, based on their products that they produced, and they're going to have to be able to identify exactly where they came from down to the uh, geographical coordinates uh, based on latitude and longitude out in their fields to say that these these lettuce came from. Uh, field number seven and at these latitude and longitude. Um, They're also saying that fortunately that they're the only ones who need to know that. Um, They can pass the lot number on, but we don't necessarily have to know uh, from that point on exactly where in the field it was grown at. That's up to the producers to maintain. Uh, The second one is a new status uh, called receiving. I shouldn't say a new status, that's receiving, but they've identified a new term they want to use and that's called first receiver. Uh, the first receiver is is the uh, um, the firm or the company or the establishment that first uh, um, receives the product and actually owns it as well as keeps it uh, uh, takes a physical possession of it. Uh, why is that important? Uh, because there's a number of times within the food industry that we have people who take possession of food but don't actually um, I should say take ownership of food but don't actually possess it. 
I'm thinking of food brokers where they might actually be buying and selling uh, on the marketplace without actually ever owning the food in a warehouse somewhere that belongs to them. Uh, so those are kind of considered pass-through entities. So basically a first receiver is going to be whoever is the first one to receive the product into a warehouse that they own that they're paying for it. Okay, And at that point, um, it's felt that that first receiver is best in the best position to maintain comprehensive information about the origination and the subsequent handling of that food through the system. So in other words, they're the ones that are going to have to know what grower it came from and what the lot codes are from that grower. So no longer can I, I have it go through a broker or through some other transient uh, pass-through entity and say, hey, I don't have to worry about that information. They do. It is now my responsibility to know where that food originated from. And then from that point on, you know, uh, we, we've got a comprehensive record relating to that because we now know who that first receiver is and what that pertinent information is from behind. Um, so, uh, again, a, a quick definition of the first receiver is the first person other than a farm who purchases and takes physical possession of a listed food. That's important to note because there are exemptions and the exemptions include people like food brokers, third-party coolers, uh, any other pass-through entities that don't actually take physical possession of the product, even though they may have owned it, okay? Um, the second part of that is the definition of other receivers, other than the first receiver, and, and that's typically anybody after that. So if I buy food and I own it and then I ship it uh, to somebody else, then I'm still the first owner and or first receiver and they just become other receivers. They do also have to take some. Uh, uh, they they do also have to take some responsibility for, you know, tracking the lot codes for me, et cetera, and going on from there. Um, a, another area that that they're calling is transforming. Um, this is a kind of a strange term, uh, but really what they're going for here is anybody who. Uh, it changes a food uh, on the food traceability list. So maybe they're repackaging it or uh, it's a label change um, or uh, they're combining ingredients or processing a food, uh, you know, et cetera. So they're not actually creating the food um, because that's different, but they're actually transforming a food into something else. So uh, it, it probably is a little bit of an open-ended area as to what's considered transforming versus creating, but I'm sure they'll shake all that out during the comment uh, uh, period that's ongoing right now. Um, really what they're trying to do is make sure that the, the traceability lock code and the traceability product identifier are all captured as it goes through that particular process, okay? If we're creating a food, that's another category, um, it's actually making or producing a food on the food traceability list, okay, through manufacturing or processing, but only using ingredients that are not on the FTL. So in other words, I may have products that are ingredients that don't belong to the food traceability list, but once I combine them all, I now have a product that is. Okay, so therefore, um, I would have to assign my lot number to that product that I've made, but I have no responsibility for tracking any lot codes on any of the ingredients at that point because they're not on the food traceability list. This is kind of streamlining a lot of what we've had to do in the past. It, it kind of appears like they're trying to, to remove some of the requirements for lot traceability of everything that goes into a product uh, and, and only worry about the things that are critical that go into a product. I'm not sure that this one's going to hold up over the long term, you know, when we start thinking about where we might have issues uh, with, with food safety. Uh, but for now, this is the area that they're saying that they want to kind of scale back what our actual uh, recording might be of lock codes. So 
Um, and then we go on from there and we, you know, shipping, obviously, when we send it to somebody, uh, whoever receives it's going to have to capture the lock code, et cetera. So in retail now, uh, a lot of times they're really not bothered to worry about where what the lock code is of, of products they're receiving. Uh, they rely on the manufacturers to tell them that, oh, it was purchase order such and such, and the manufacturer has to go back and figure it out. They're going to require retail now to capture those lock codes also as they go forward. So that's going to be a significant change for for the partnership between uh, producers or manufacturers and and retail at that point. So, so, so what other records are required? So you know um, we talked about some of the key data elements above, um, but they would also require uh, anyone subject to the rule to maintain traceability program records, okay? It's a little bit different than what we may have to do in the past, okay? Um, a, a description might be, you know, uh, various type of reference records, such as bills of lading, purchase orders, production logs. Um, a firm's traceability program records need to include a description of the reference record and, and where it's maintained. Uh, and then the description also has to uh, say where the reference record and the traceability information appears on labels, et cetera, so that it's easy to identify and find these kind of things. Um, and it really goes based on each of the different types of foods on the traceability list as to what is actually required. And it's also dependent on what the critical tracking event is because it does change throughout, okay? Um, but one of the biggest parts of this is how we uh, assign traceability lock codes. In the past, you know, uh, a vendor might assign a lock code, and when we receive it, we assign our own lock code, and when we ship it out, they assign their lock code, et cetera, et cetera. For foods that are on the FTL list, um, once they've been assigned a lot number, they want to maintain that continuity of the lot number throughout the system. So now if I bring in a product like a leafy green vegetable from a farm and there's a lot code assigned at the farm level, I have to use that when I bring it into my operation. And even though I may be transforming it, uh, you know, packaging it, et cetera, I still have to maintain that same lot number throughout the process all the way to the consumer on the end. So that now I have a single lot number that I'm tracing all the way through the system versus multiples that we have today. This falls in line with the FDA's idea that they want to set up a, a more of a independent piece-by-piece uh, uh, -piece blockchain, I guess, arrangement within the FDA. They'll take all the individual pieces and string them together, but in order to do that, they need to have the same lot number flow through the whole system. I think this could be a challenge for a lot of companies and a lot of people going forward is how do we maintain that lot continuity from one end to another. So, um, so Basically, what in summarization, what that means is that once the traceability lock code is assigned, uh, when the food is first originated or created, then that has to stay the same all the way through um, unless the food is subsequently um, you know, transformed into something completely different. And then it can be assigned a new lock code. But when we're talking leafy vegetables and things like that, or shell eggs, et cetera, where there's not a lot of changes to it, fin fish, uh, you know, it's going to require that they have the same lock code all the way through the process. So um, that's really the biggest part of this that that is going to give some people some issue. Uh, other information that they need at this point is uh, they need to understand the data within the traceability records. You know, in other words, as they're sending these things through, you know, they're going to have to give some uh, internal external coding systems and classification schemes and, and, uh, and supply the FDA with glossaries and abbreviations if they're doing any of those type things. It's a lot to swallow, Kim. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. <laughs> so, um, 
what, what, are, what else should we know about the new regulations and traceability requirements? So right now, uh, you know, FISMA Chapter 204 and the New Era Blueprint uh, seem to be geared towards voluntary recalls initiated by companies um, in response to a problem. Uh, and, and that can be done either independently by the company or at the request of the FDA. It doesn't replace mandatory recalls, but but they're really trying to encourage people to take a little more responsibility for their own actions and what's going on within their companies and their food products um, and trying to uh, have more of a, um, a, a friendly relationship, I guess I would say, with the manufacturers to, to make sure that everybody's on the same page as we do this. Um, the establishment of the food safety list is intended to highlight areas, you know, in the food industry that have the highest risk in the recent past. So they're trying to like narrow it down so that not everybody's affected, you know, by broad sweeps of FDA regulations. It's really pinpointing areas that, that are of highest concern. Um, as always, you know, the traceability requirements are, are what we need to look for. You know, we need backward traceability. If, uh, if a, a lot code comes out at the retail level, I need to trace that all the way back to the source. Um, down at the, uh, uh, you know, the FDA needs to trace it all the way back to the source. And, and this is the vehicle that they think is best for doing that. At the same time, if there's determined that there's a problem at the source or somewhere in between, you know, they, they want to be able to look forward and backwards and find all those different pieces. You know, what, what supplier did it come from? What field did it come from? Who, who used it in between? You know, who was the creator? Where was it shipped? Who was the end user, et cetera? Um, and then based on some of these things, if it's really critical, they're going to institute a recall audit check. Um, and, you know, recall audit checks uh, may have more than one within a recall, okay, um, because they may want to know where all this product ended up. They may want to know all the other products that you use that product in. You, they may want to know exactly where it came from so they can institute a, uh, something else down the line. Um, but when it comes to, you know, me as a manufacturer, I may have to tell them where I got it and where I sent it, but then they also may want to do an audit check on all of my my uh, um, safety measures within the the factory or in the plant. You know, did I do the proper testing? Did I get the right results? Am I maintaining my records co correctly? And they're going to want all of that uh, back within a relatively short period of time, usually 10 days or less, depending on the severity of the incident. Um, that doesn't. That sounds like a lot of time until I have to start wading through mounds and mounds of paper records or digging through uh, a multitude of Excel spreadsheets to try and pull all this information together. That's where it becomes difficult. Um, there's just more and more information that they're going to be asking for. Um, you know, obviously they want the product, they want the lot code, but now they want the company. They want to know the manufacturer of the product. So if I bought it from somebody else, who's the manufacturer? They want to know all the distribution channels that it may have gone out in. They want to know the potential threat in the marketplace, how much might be out there, how much may have been consumed already. It's all the data that they want to get back in so they can make informed decisions and, and start to move this forward and, and determine how severe the issues are. Um, and the main thing is, if you're not meeting these requirements, if you don't get the, that information to them initially within 24 hours that they're asking for that sortable spreadsheet, or you don't meet your deadlines on your audit checks, et cetera, there's going to be penalties. There already are, but I think they're going to become more severe as time goes on um, because they're really in the business to protect the public. Uh, so we all need to work together to try and uh, make sure that, that we make sense out of these different regulations and how we institute them within our own companies and how we can best serve uh, the, the, the public in the end. So, 
Thanks, Steve. This was a great discussion on critical tracking events, FDA regulations, and how traceability plays a role in all this. Learn more about traceability on our next episode with John Shepperson from SWK Technologies. Thanks for joining. Thanks for joining us. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast so you'll be first in line to hear what's coming next. Don't want to wait for our next episode? Check us out at Witham.com. That's W-I-T-H-U-M.com.